Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode where our good friend Stephanie will be interviewing their good friend, Jazz LaFont. I'll let Stephanie intro Jazz, but suffice to say that we are very fortunate to have them with us to talk a little bit about race and LGBTQ issues from a perspective that none of us hosts have. They have some powerful insight, and you can tell by their speech and the work that they do that they are both incredibly passionate and incredibly compassionate. Hope you enjoy. So, I am thankful for having you here. I'm thankful for this opportunity to introduce you to this community. And I believe that our listeners are going to appreciate you just as much as I do by the end. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I'm honored to be a guest. And I'm always, always happy to talk to you. Good. (laughs) So as a little bit of an intro, I'm taking some things from a bio that I saw online. You are Jazz LaFond an activist, a mental health counselor, a community organizer, an event planner, a voice actor, a makeup enthusiast, a spouse, a mother. You are a non-binary Black American. Yes. Agree? Agree. (laughs) (laughs) And It's a lot, right? (laughs) Um, So for our listeners that don't know, um, non-binary people use they, them, their pronouns, Mm -hmm. which Jazz uses. I was introduced to Jazz through PFLAG. And PFLAG is a national organization that's about 40 years old. They do education, advocacy, and support for the LGBTQ community. And I was there as a parent of a trans daughter. And Jazz came to PFLAG a few months later with a co-worker from the Manchester Mental Health Center, right? That's right, yeah. And they were interested in seeing a P flag presence in Manchester. So we got to work together um, in starting a P flag support group in Manchester and had a few support groups before COVID hit. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, um, so for the benefit of our listeners, and because most of our listeners are Christian or used to be Christian or are in some kind of deconstructing process, will you tell us a little bit about your faith background? Sure, absolutely. Um, so some of my earliest memories are actually of church. I was raised uh, originally as a Southern Baptist. So um, Sundays were spent in Sunday school very early in the morning until the early evening. We would have the word, we would have praise and worship, and then we would have evening service, and then we would go home. My mother felt it was really important for us to have that background. As we got older, unfortunately, my mother uh, did get sick. 
And so it was a lot harder to get to church and we moved around a lot. And so we spent a few years out of church. And um, after my mother passed, we were actually adopted by the same person who had been her nurse. And um, this person took us in and raised us and introduced us to the Pentecostal church. And this is the, the Jamaican Pentecostal church. So when they church, they church hard. okay i like that description okay so um yeah uh, it was similar in many ways to my southern baptist childhood with a few differences as far as um the specifics which i think you'll find in any church but Mm -hmm. definitely um grew up reading the bible praying at dinner time meal times fellowshipping with others, and then sort of, as I got older, finding my own path. And that's kind of where I am now is constantly studying and spending a lot of time in introspection. Mm. And do you identify with any particular faith today? I would say that I, I identify the most, e- the easy, easiest way, I guess, to describe it would be to say that I'm spiritual. And yeah, I just have sort of an amalgamation (laughs) of Mm. of, uh, beliefs um, and uh, literature under my belt. Got it. Good. So let's let's focus on 2020. And this is a loaded question, I find. Mm. (laughs) How are you? (laughs) (laughs) Well... (laughs) so yeah Yeah. right so um when we went into lockdown middle of march Mm -hmm. how did that affect you and your family well it was there were a lot of feelings it was i think most obviously it was kind of scary because there was so little information everybody was sort of scrambling to try and figure out what was the right thing to do. Should we go outside? Should we mask up? Should we stock up? Um, Mm -hmm. How long is this going to last? All of those questions. Mm -hmm. And for my, for my family in particular, it was of concern because I'm immunocompromised and so is my eldest child. Mm -hmm. And so um, even like thinking of going to the grocery store was, was a scary thought. And so we had to adjust very quickly to, I guess what we can call now the the new normal. And so, um, you know, just becoming very mindful about everything that we do and how we travel when we do travel and all of that. So I think for me, it was a little easier because I'm an introvert. And so I don't have to see people very often to feel okay. Um, My partner, however, is an extrovert. I like to call him the mayor of everything. (laughs) <laughs> and <laughs> and so um, I think for him it was more of an adjustment. Luckily, I can say that he and I were were best friends, and so we 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 get a kick out of being around each other, and we have great relationships with the kids as well. You know, um, mm-hmm. and so we've we've been able to be sort of this cohesive and relatively happy unit through this, which I'm really thankful for. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's interesting now, though, because, you know, in March, we were wrapping up the school year and adjusting to remote learning 
and all of that and thinking, well, you know, we'll, we'll check back in in the fall and see sort of how this goes. And, uh, well, Ms. Rona had a different idea. So, <laughs> so Rona. Rona. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's been an adjustment for sure. Okay. And are you and Stephen both working from home? Yeah. So uh, Stephen works from home primarily. Most of the time he's here at home, which is been nice because my work is actually in mental health Mm -hmm. um, and I work on a crisis unit. So I do have to go in to the facility to work for at least for my day job. And so I do all of my counseling work on site. The other work I do, as was alluded to in my weirdly long bio, um, I I do a lot (laughs) of that from home. (laughs) Gotcha. Yes. (laughs) Good, good. Okay. So we're all locked down and us introverts are doing fine. Yes. And then... (laughs) That should be a t-shirt, by the way. Introvert and doing fine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm fine. I don't have to go anywhere. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So May comes along and then towards the end of May, we hear about George Floyd and then this Mm. whole new layer introduces itself to the pandemic yes so tell me about how that news impacted you and your family yeah um i was heartbroken my first exposure to that story in particular uh was the video that was going around on the internet and so I got a very visceral introduction to what happened. And I remember at the end of the, of that footage, um, I was already upset by the end of the footage, but I remember closer to the end, uh, hearing George Floyd call for his mother during his, his last moments. And I remember just feeling broken, just everything. I felt shattered by it because as as a mother i think that's my worst nightmare is is to ever have my children in in a position where they are afraid and know that they're dying and calling for me i think it's the worst thing that can happen to a mother period so it really hit me in that way but it also hit me of course as a black american and it was a reminder of the fact that we have so much work that needs to be done as far as recognizing even the humanity um, that that exists in black people. And, and it's something that shouldn't be up for debate, but apparently we're, we're not there yet. And so um, it was a reminder of what really we need to be working on here. When I uh, saw the video, I was in the middle of doing a makeup challenge, which I, I have been known to do. And um, I think the assignment for that day for the makeup challenge was something like uh, sadness or emotion. So I had already been using makeup as self-care because we've been in lockdown, but I wanted to use the platform that I had gained from that to bring attention to the issue. And so um, I did a makeup look that had I can't breathe written across my forehead. And I posted it because I really wanted to 
open up the conversation among the people who are following me and remind them that this is this is this issue has not been uh, put to bed and it can't be put to bed this is a lived experience for all of us and we don't get to opt out so i guess that's my long-winded answer it was hurtful it was scary um and it really lit a fire under me to um to try and use my platform to the best of my ability to just say you know it's time to look at this it's time to examine this yeah mm -hmm. it feels a little weird to say that i'm i'm glad that this happened during a pandemic mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it feels like it's getting the attention that it needs yes does I absolutely agree. It, yeah. it makes total sense. And I've, I've actually said that myself a couple of times since, because I don't think that if we were not in an, if we were not in a uh, pandemic at this moment, I don't think it would have gotten the coverage that it has right, right now. Right now we're, and again, fortunate does sound like a, a strange word to use, but we're fortunate enough to have an audience that really can't go much of anywhere, we're sort of a captive audience. And so we can, right we have the opportunity to turn people's heads and say, Hey, no, this is still happening. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I agree. I agree with you there. Yeah. And a lot of speakers and leaders are encouraging everyone to do homework, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is good. I've yes. done a little myself learning a lot. Yeah. Um, I'll just encourage people if you haven't listened to the 1619 podcast mm -hmm. to go listen to that. That's a good one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's a large number of resources to use to educate yourself on how we got here. Right. That's right. Absolutely. And it's only been building. So there, there are lots of resources out there now. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So did you change your, did you pivot or change the way you spend your time? You're, you're an activist and you were involved in LGBTQ activism. Has the way you spend your time changed since this racial issue has come to the surface? Mm -hmm. I would say that it hasn't changed so much as I've been more mindful about, about balancing the way that I use my resources and the way that I use my platform, because I've always tried to make it very clear that my identity is that of a black queer person. And both of those things are intrinsic to who I am. And so the issues that I, I talk about, uh, for instance, on my blog have to do with the experience of blackness and the experience of queerness. But I do feel like I've been more mindful to express my feelings and um, my own research, my own work as it pertains to uh, blackness because of, because of what's happening. There has been an increase in the content that has to do with blackness, but I also feel like it's important to shed a light on the intersectionality there because black people are at risk here, obviously, but black queer people are probably even more at risk because um, there is so much racism in the queer community and so much homophobia in the black community. 
Mm. And so we're constantly having to navigate those choppy waters um, just to survive and, and let alone be seen as human or of worth to the rest of the community. Wow. And so, um, yeah, it's really been sort of sounding off on that. So you have two different communities to try and educate. Exactly. Exactly. And sometimes it's slow going. It really mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. So share some of your experiences in living in New Hampshire as a black queer person. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I will say that for the most part, my experiences have been positive. I've, I've been able to find a sense of community. I've been able to make friends who make me feel seen um, and validated in who I am. On the other side of that, there is a lot of work to be done just around raising awareness that queer people and black queer people exist um, <laughs> uh, and that we might need uh, resources that people haven't previously thought of. And so even in my daily work, it's been about sort of educating people on, you know, basic things like terminology um, mm -hmm. and why certain terms are not okay, <laughs> what certain what certain other terms mean. Um, there have been many moments where I have introduced myself and used my pronouns, and I've gotten the blankest of stares. <laughs> oh gosh! <laughs> um, and there have been other moments where I have introduced myself and someone saw fit to put their hands in my hair and they were trying to be complimentary, but I did have to uh, stop that person and ask why they felt welcome to my person mm -hmm. to examine why that might be. And so I, I am not the type of person who likes to beat around the bush. I, I consider myself to be a blunt person. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think that that has served me um, because I am able to say, you know, I really don't feel comfortable being touched or, you know, I would really appreciate it if you, if you used my pronouns, I feel comfortable doing that, but there are so many people who, who don't and would rather avoid any perceived conflict. And that is, part of why I do what I do as, as an activist is to, to raise awareness so that people are not put in those positions anymore. So, yeah, I think that, <laughs> I think that within my community, I've been very, very fortunate to meet people who get me. And I, I've been able to meet people like you who have just been so wonderful and, and such a, such a blessing to my life. Um, but I definitely think that, um, more information is needed. And I think that people need to understand that, you know, your neighbors could be queer, your, your, you know, the fellow churchgoers could be queer. Um, right. Yeah. The, you know, the black person in the supermarket is probably not thinking about you. They're probably thinking about tomatoes or something. Um. <laughs> They're actually there They're to actually buy there groceries. Coming. Yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so I, I, yeah, I, until, until that's more commonplace or I give up the ghost, whichever one comes first, <laughs> that's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> 
Well, and let's not be naive. Mm -hmm. I went to a Black Lives Matter event in my town and listened to a few young people share stories mm -hmm. of how they experienced racism yes. in New Hampshire. Yes. And it's hugely disappointing. It is. That people behave the way they do. Yeah. Are there any s stories you want to share on that yeah. front? Yeah. Uh, the first one that I think of uh, was fairly recent. My youngest child, my daughter, was invited to a friend's house for a play date. And she was so excited for the week up leading up to this play date. Could not wait to see her friend's house. Um, they had been playing a lot together at school. And so she was just very excited to spend more time with this classmate of hers. And a couple of days before the play date was supposed to happen, I go to pick up my daughter from school. And she tells me, that her invitation had been rescinded that that the friend said that uh that they could not do the play date any longer and when i asked if there was a reason for it there was and the reason was because my daughter's classmate's father had said that my daughter who was eight at the time could come over to the house because she was little but if she were any older he'd have to shoot her on sight yeah yeah uh and it, it was of course very difficult and i i have to be honest i was enraged because no one no one ever wants to feel like their child is being singled out mm -hmm. or or is in danger mm -hmm. but know that my child who was just the bubbliest funniest kindest thing could be perceived as a target by mm -hmm. someone based on the fact that her skin is dark. And so I feel, I almost feel like I can take the brunt of racism. I can take the brunt of homophobia. I, I can tough it out. I've been here, I've been back and I've survived it. But to know that this is going to be a formative memory for my child, it just, it hurts. It really does. And I don't know how an eight-year-old processes yeah. something like that. Yeah, and and I think I think that's the thing is they they don't fully process it. It's something that you continue to process through throughout your life. Mm, right. You know, um, my first instance of racism, I was around the same age, and I still think about it to this day, and I examine it, and I try to see it from the perspective of the of the other person for some mm -hmm. reason. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's, it's something that sticks with you for certain. Do you have hope that mm. we're going to make progress as a country in this area? Um, I do have hope. I do. I think that it's going to take time and I think it's going to take persistence. And I think back to... I mean, the most obvious example is the civil rights movement. And I think back to the fact that, you know, in the 60s, even going to the same 
grocery store or restaurant um, mm-hmm. or park would have been seen as as this heinous act. And we're not there. It's taken decades, but we're not there right now. So yeah. I think I'm I think and I'm hoping that we will see a faster transition into a time where people are seen and even appreciated for their racial and cultural and ethnic differences. My hope is Mm -hmm. that enough of us are fighting for this now that we're going to see a real shift in the way that we see people in this country. But it is going to take work because it's just, it's our system is so steeped in it and our history is so steeped in it um, that it's going to take a lot of time to sort of pull apart but I have to remain hopeful because if I don't, if I'm not hopeful, I'm just, it's going to be too much. Right. Right. Yeah. I think there's a lot of work to do in Mm -hmm. terms of education in our schools and teaching our history in a way that honors everybody Mm -hmm. and presents history in an honest way. Yeah. That isn't, from a, you know, white right. man's perspective, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> it's so, it's, I, I think about this and I think about the history teachers I've had in the past. Um, only one of them was black, but <laughs> <laughs> I think about them and the material that they had to teach. And mm-hmm. I think about how I would feel in that position because they were probably around my age when I, when I had them as teachers. And I think back to like opening a chapter on <laughs> Christopher Columbus mm. or the invention of the cotton gin, <laughs> like, like things like that. And having to read this very bland and whitewashed and straightwashed version of history to people mm. um, or even English class. I mean, um, Emily Dickinson. I didn't know anything about Emily Dickinson being queer until I was well in my 20s and was watching a movie called The Hours that was that's sort of based on her life. And then I had to do the research myself. And so we are sort of given this version of history. We're supposed to just sort of internalize and go about our lives. And, and I'm lucky that I've had opportunities to question it and therefore learn more but I think about the people who have just sort of not had those opportunities and are just sort of, you know, going about their life, tra la la, and, and yeah. not realizing how much of that history is inaccurate. So I, I absolutely agree with you. We have got to um, revisit the way that we teach our history and honor the people who've contributed to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank God for the internet. Yeah. There's all kinds of resources out there. True. Very true. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so do you have any thoughts on this task force that the New Hampshire governor has put together on police accountability? I, I do have a couple of thoughts. <laughs> um, <laughs> my, my main concern is that I am not seeing uh, the wealth of representation that I would like to see. Um I feel like it's important to include people of color in a decision-making position on such Mm -hmm. a task force, but also these, we need to have people of color who 
range within the community, um, especially economically, because the experience of someone who has been raised in the suburbs or has, you know, been middle class or higher for most of their um, adult life is going to be very different from someone who has been raised and has been living in poverty. And yeah. so I feel like the, I feel like we're not going to get real representation until we recognize that issue and address the economic and educational disparity that's there. Because we have so many people in our community who are knowledgeable and are forces for change and are not given the opportunity because, you know, maybe they don't have a college degree or, you know, maybe they don't have a political history or what have you. And so I feel like it's really important to tap our communities because we're here and we're, we want to do the work. Awesome. Mm -hmm. I would love to see real change come as a result of this. So would I. Absolutely. So do you, do you have any ins, Jazz? <laughs> what yeah. what are your so what are your aspirations mm. <laughs> um so right now my my aspirations are to continue growing community amongst queer people and people of color and most importantly queer people of color so um right now that's creating opportunities for work and paying people, um, uh, for example, through my, my digital shows that I've been doing mm -hmm. um, and my, my audio drama that I've done. Um, and so giving people opportunities for not only exposure, but actual um, income because we, you know, that's the system we live in and you have to have that in order to sort of catapult yourself into any form of uh, self-actualization. But... <laughs> I am I am looking forward to um, doing more social work on a macro scale and on a micro scale um, as the opportunities arise. And I think that with this pandemic, all of the movement that we've seen toward remote services and digital services opens up some of those opportunities. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how that's going to pan out. Um, I really want to be of use to my community and I want to be a sign that that we exist and that we can make it into these positions and that we can have influence. I guess in short, my goal is to be blacker and gayer and to make that more <laughs> make that more acceptable. <laughs> One of the things I appreciate about you is your directness. Oh. And you. And your good boundaries and being able to tell people, no, that's not okay. And here are my pronouns and you should use them. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> and you've posted on social media a few times opportunities for people to financially contribute to you. Yes, absolutely. And that was sort of a, a step for me as well because... Mm. I have definitely been raised as a femme to to give and to and to not expect in return. And so I had to really have a conversation with myself about the value of my labor and how that mm -hmm. is also having healthy boundaries because honestly I 
I mean, you ask my husband, (laughs) I spend, (laughs) I spend hours cultivating the resources that I share, writing my speeches, creating my town halls, traveling here and there for speaking engagements when that was, you know, a thing. And Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) (laughs) there's just a lot of preparation that goes into what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of emotional labor too, because I'm, I'm constantly sort of picking over not only the black lived experience in general, but my own lived experience as a black person a black queer person who has struggled with mental health issues, who has struggled with poverty, who has struggled with trauma. And mm-hmm. that's that's trauma on a large scale and on an individual scale. And so yeah. I'm I'm always um sort of throwing myself, all of myself, into those engagements. And it took me a while, but I realized, you know, that's that is worth something. And that's real that's real work. That's harder than almost anything else I've done in my life. And so it just, I, th- I really feel like it's only right to compensate people who are doing that, not just myself, but the people who are really putting themselves out there and are trying to be a force for change. I think that's worthwhile. And I think that if we can place monetary value on that in this, in this uh, society that we, this capitalist society that we have, then people mm-hmm. will continue to place emotional value and mental value and it will become capital both in the literal sense and the figurative sense i I really hope that we can raise the importance of the black experience and black voices in that way yes 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 i think that's a a huge point that you made about the way women especially do not value their contributions right and i appreciate some of the people that I follow that start requiring payment of their resources. I agree. Good lesson for all of us. (laughs) All right. Do you want to tell us about any upcoming events or things you've got (laughs) in the works? Sure. Most recently, I am just thrilled to announce that I have published an audio adaptation of For Colored Girls, which is, if you're not familiar with it, it's a choreo poem that was written by Notsake Shange in the 70s. And it really throws a focus on the experience of Black and Afro-Latinx women and their, their struggles and also their joys, but in a really beautiful way. And um, yeah, yeah, I, I felt like it was just the perfect time to call back to that piece and remind people that we have all of these emotions and experiences just sort of swirling inside of us and they're boiling to the surface at this point in the time of, in the time of BLM and racial justice. And so Mm -hmm. those words that were originally written and performed in the seventies still ring true today. I actually have just published uh, that and I've had a wonderful cast full of black and Afro-Latinx femmes who just, oh my goodness, I just am, I could not be prouder. It's the first time I've ever directed anything. So I'm just, this is my baby. All right. (laughs) Uh, So that was brilliant. Um, Is that a podcast? What format is that? It is a, it is in podcast form. Okay. Uh, right now we have it on Spotify and I actually just uploaded it so that it will be on the other platforms, hopefully in the next day or so. I'm excited for you. 
Thank you. <laughs> all right. I think that's all I have. Is there anything else you want to share with us? I mean, I am just, again, I'm, I'm grateful to have been on the show. I'm grateful to have this time with you. And I'm grateful to everyone listening um, and taking the time to learn about someone who may have a bit of a different path from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you. Thank you all for that. Well, Jess, it was so good catching up with you. Likewise. <laughs> and I hope we, um, I hope I can see you in person before the, before the year is out. Oh, me too. Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Virtual hug. Yes. Hugs. <laughs> um, take care of you. And um, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, a big thank you to Jazz for joining us and to you for listening. If you want to know more about Jazz and support the work that they do, you can find out more at their blog askabrownfeminine.com or on their Facebook page facebook.com slash brownfeminine and feminine is spelled F-E-M-I-N-E-M As always, feel free to reach out to us with feedback and if you want to support us, you can check out lonelymountainmystics.com and click become a patron. Thanks everyone and we'll see you next time.